As we begin this morning, I want you to consider with me what we would not know if it were not for the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John is such a beautiful, rich book, and it has so much to say and so much to teach us from Jesus himself, but also many stories and sayings that if John had not written them down, we wouldn't know them. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we have so many other stories and teachings and parables. There's so much that they tell us about Jesus, but much of what Matthew, Mark, and Luke tell us are the same stories, sometimes just with a little bit more information one from the other. John, on the other hand, brings us so much content from the life, the teaching, and the ministry of Jesus that he witnessed firsthand. And again, if he had not written down, had not told us these stories, we wouldn't know. Consider that there are six miracles in John that Matthew, Mark, and Luke don't tell us about. We'll see some of those in the weeks to come. There are metaphors about Jesus like that he is the bread of life, the living water, that he is the light of the world. Matthew says, we are the light of the world. John says, but Jesus is the true light of the world. He's the door. He's the good shepherd. He's the true vine. And many of the stories from the very last week of Jesus' life before his crucifixion, only John tells us. In fact, more than a third of John covers the last week of Jesus' life. And there are stories we've covered in our readings already, including Jesus with some of his disciples. The story of Nicodemus that we read last week. Without John, of course, we wouldn't have John 3.16. Nor would we have my favorite verse in all of the Bible. John 3.30. He must increase, I must decrease. And the story that we are reading today of the Samaritan woman, we would not know if John had not told us. Now before we move into John chapter 4, I want you to consider now where we are this morning. We're just a few weeks into a new year, and we as Americans have an awful lot to disagree about. And we notice as we look around our culture, many people are all too willing to jump into those disagreements. In fact, we could find a new thing to be angry about and disagree about every single day, probably more than one thing, and we wouldn't have to try all that hard. In fact, there are many people who like it. They want to be in the middle of whatever the next argument and dispute might be. And I'll say that personally, I, while I have no problem speaking up, speaking out whenever I feel led, whenever I feel it's needed, I have no desire to be dragged into most of the controversies and the debates and the disagreements that we have around us. Maybe you feel the same way, and yet we know how easy it is to get caught up, to find something new to be angry about, even if you're not sure exactly why you're supposed to be angry about it. And if you're like me, I even prayed it a moment ago, you're already tired and we're just a few weeks in, and we wonder what is coming next. I shared with the 830 service a week ago, but failed to share it here, so it must have been meant for you today instead of last week, that I have a friend who has what he calls a 10-minute rule with all of his social media. He, if he decides he's going to either post something or share something, just click that little share button, 
he has made a commitment to wait 10 minutes and in that 10 minutes he has a couple of options in some cases he might need to go look for more information to find out if what he's about to share is even true or reliable but in most cases it's simply just to wait for a moment and think and consider is this a good idea is it really helpful and my friend says more often than not in that 10 minute period i decide not to do it rather than to do it it's a good practice my part of what i i believe is my job and my calling as a pastor especially in this day and age is to remind us of the church of as the church of our higher calling just like mine just like you have the same one that when all that is, is happening around us, even when we're angry or frustrated, even if there are things we know we ought to speak up about, there's a way in which Christ has modeled and commanded we are to do it. And I believe that, for me, one of the most disheartening things in the last season has been the way that Christians choose to speak about others. I have a friend who says, the way we talk about others as Christians has become a crisis of the soul because we know in our hearts and we know as the Holy Spirit leads us we know better in our soul at that level than to be that way but we've all been guilty of it and as I said those controversies are always there and they're always pulling at us and it was the same way in Jesus day we see here in the beginning of John chapter 4 that the woman Jesus is talking to in Samaria, she wants to pull him in to a long-standing, bitter controversy. One that was centuries old. One that most people were not likely to change their minds on anytime soon, even when the Messiah was in their midst. And what's amazing about this controversy, we talk about a, a crisis of the soul in our own time. This controversy ran so deep and it went back so far that over centuries and even in the decades leading up to jesus ministry many people died because the division was so bad the hatred was so deep and it went back so long that again it was unlikely that anyone was going to change their opinion and yet much like today everybody had an opinion the reason jesus was in samaria if you've been reading along hopefully doing your the reading plan with us here in the gospel of john is because he chose to go through what was considered enemy territory jesus and his disciples had been in judea they'd been in southern israel because the heat was being turned up john says that jesus was now baptizing more people he and his disciples than john the baptist and because of that people were taking note and he was now on the radar of the pharisees and the religious leaders the heat was being turned up and so they decided to go back up north to galilee for a while but instead of taking the usual route most people from judea because they knew the samaritans hated them or at least they thought and they didn't like the samaritans much either rather than going through samaria which was in the middle between judea and galilee they'd go around sometimes they'd go up the coast right along the side of the mediterranean other times they'd go through the mountains and the hill country along the border of what we call Jordan now. Anything they could to avoid going through the place where the Samaritans lived. But John tells us that Jesus had to, and I think when he says Jesus had to, what he means is Jesus intended to go through Samaria on this occasion, and we see why 
because there were some divine appointments waiting for him. And the first divine appointment for Jesus was with this Samaritan woman at the well who is shocked when Jesus, a man, speaks to her as a woman in public and she can tell by the way that he's dressed that he's not from her town. He's not from Samaria. He's from Judea. And she says to him, how is it that you, a man from Judea, speaks to me, a woman from Samaria, out here in front of everyone? Jesus is breaking down in this conversation a lot of very deep cultural barriers those of gender those of religious difference political difference those of prejudice and hatred one between the other and it's funny when his disciples finally arrive a little bit later in the story they too are shocked to see jesus talking to this woman but i love what john says they dared not question him about it they just couldn't understand what was happening in front of their eyes in samaria of all places but a phrase that you'll hear me use a lot this morning is the heart of the matter. Jesus in his conversation with this woman at the well gets to the heart of the matter, to her own life, her own shame. When he asks her about her husband, he knows she has no husband. She's living with someone. And he also knows that she's been married several times in the past. Her relationship with God and her relationship with others they were all messy, and Jesus knew it. But he spoke to her with such compassion, in such a redemptive way, and realizing that the man in front of her was not an average Judean guy. She wants to ask another question. She doesn't want to talk about the personal stuff, right? Who would? She wants to drag Jesus into this long-standing debate. Maybe finally this man will solve the unanswerable question that we all have and perhaps she's even hoping in her heart that he'll choose her side and so she says sir i can see that you are a prophet and in calling jesus a prophet she both rightly identifies him because the new testament does say that jesus serves a prophetic role for us but she also misidentifies him because Jesus is far more than a prophet. The Messiah that she had been praying for, that her people, the Samaritans, had been praying for just as much as the Judeans was feet away from her speaking to her, and yet at this time, she has no idea. She sees that Jesus is wise. He clearly knows things about her that she can't explain how he would know them and so she wants to bring him into the debate she wants to know what does god prefer does god prefer the people like you does he prefer your worship and the place where you worship in jerusalem or does he prefer us and the people like me and the mountain here in samaria where we go to worship him same god two very different groups of people but again, Jesus, not wanting to be brought into the debate, not even settling the question for her, gets to the heart of the matter. Now, before we get to the next words that Jesus says, I want to talk for just a minute about the Old Testament reading that we had. Ezekiel prophesied that 
there was going to come a time where there would be one nation serving under one king. You may have noticed this last week in some of the inauguration festivities that there was sign language that was offered. And whenever the, the, the ASL sign language for America was done, I, I thought it was a beautiful picture of the hands coming together, interlocking fingers, and stirring like a pot, like a melting pot. We've heard this phrase a lot coming out of the mouths of Christians and others for decades, for centuries, but even recently. What does it mean to be one nation under God? That's the language we use. Well, back in the early days of Israel, when Israel first began being formed as a nation, when they actually had a king, I'm thinking of David, thinking of Solomon, at least for a time, they were united. They were one nation worshiping one God. They'd put off their idols. They'd been faithful to God. Their king had been faithful to God. And God had blessed them, not in some sort of nationalistic way, but as his people. And as his people, he had established them. He'd made them prosperous. He'd protected them. And listen, we, I think, often make the mistake of taking everything the Old Testament says about Israel and saying that all of that applies to America. But in the same way, that thought, that idea of one nation under God, that's exactly what Ezekiel prophesied about later. Because when Ezekiel prophesied, this was not what was happening in Israel. They were a people divided. The Jews, the Samaritans, like we see here in John 4, they hated each other. Each was sure that the other hated them more. They were fractured, they were divided, and they were not serving the one true God and the one true King. So what Ezekiel prophesied was, listen, there's a time that's coming, the sovereign Lord says, when I will gather all my people who are scattered, who are divided, and I will bring them back together under one king. And finally, when that day comes, and when that king is in place, once again, they will be my people, and I will be their God. And yet, if you read throughout the rest of the Old Testament after Ezekiel, you read the, the stories of the Jewish people in between the Old Testament and the birth of Jesus, it never happens. There's never a king who unites them together. So we know now, looking back, that what Ezekiel was talking about, the king Ezekiel was prophesying about, had to be Jesus. And here in Samaria, in John chapter 4, we see Christ fulfilling that prophecy, at least a taste of it, that for a moment... The Judeans and the Samaritans are going to see the Messiah together. One king, one people under God. It's amazing when you think about all that's happening, where it's happening, and who it's happening with. Jesus and a woman from Samaria. And yet you see, I think in the Samaritan woman, she's confident in her opinions, at least to this point. She seems to want to bring Jesus in, but she knows what she thinks. She hopes he's going to say the mountain in Samaria. She hopes he's going to be on her side. And yet even in her confidence, like many of us, you, you can discern a hint of doubt and insecurity. And so Jesus pivots from the controversy, from the debate of the day, 
back to the heart of the matter and this is the heart of the matter true worship he says to her it's not about geography don't misunderstand jerusalem does have a role to play we as the jews understand something that you all have forgotten that that the messiah the king is going to come from judah so yes jerusalem is important but i tell you a time is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the father in spirit and in truth for they are the kind of worshipers the father seeks and if that's hard for us to understand what does jesus mean well it's even harder to understand because he says god is spirit and his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth to rightly understand and identify what it means that we must worship in spirit we have to understand what jesus means by saying god is spirit but that language at least in english it hits our ears sort of strange because we think of god as much more than just a spirit there are even some translations that miss this they say god is a spirit as if he's just a spirit among many spirits he just happens to be the greatest but the comparison that's being made here in the language if you go not only to the greek but even more so to its parallel in hebrew what jesus has just said is god is that which created all life and sustains all life he is the god who gave breath to everything that breathes he is the god that continues to allow there to be life in everything that lives he is the god that allows the movement of everything and everyone who moves in all of the universe that's the god who demands that you and i worship him with every part of our heart soul mind and strength why because that's who he is and he's worthy of our worship at that level our entire being that god gives to us and sustains in us is what he wants back in worship and so to worship god in spirit is to take the very life and breath that he's given to us and to return it to him in worship but not in word only in spirit and in truth which means yes what we say yes what we sing but also our very lives and the way that we live there are two words that we hold in tension and dallas willard sort of sets us up for this if you've ever read dallas willard you know he just had an, an incredible ability to drill down to the heart of spirit and truth and what it means to be a disciple dallas willard said speaking specifically of american christians near the end of his life our understanding of a commitment to jesus christ has not penetrated our character deeply enough to influence our behavior when jesus said true worship is in spirit yes with life and breath but also in truth jesus modeled for us even here in this story what a disciple is supposed to look like that yes we speak the right things about jesus we affirm them we learn them we teach them but a disciple is one who follows the master closely the two words we hold in tension orthodoxy right belief 
and orthopraxy right practice. It's altogether possible to become fully versed in every facet of theology and doctrine, to become educated at the deepest and highest level in all things about the Bible, and yet not actually have a personal transformational experience with God and His Word. It's possible to have all the answers, to know all the stuff. If you doubt me on this, just look at the religious leaders in Jesus' day. They knew the Bible backwards and forwards. Most of them had most, if not all, of the Hebrew Scriptures committed to memory. And yet when the Messiah was right in front of their face, they rejected Him. But not so the woman in Samaria. As she saw the Messiah in front of her, drilling down to the heart of the matter, she had an opportunity for true worship. And she didn't miss it. Orthodoxy, orthopraxy, right belief, right practice. Those two go side by side on the same path in the flow of the kingdom of God. And they are displayed faithfully in the life of every disciple of Jesus Christ. And so what I love about what happens next, he gets to the heart of the matter. He talks about true worship. And then he tells her, a woman in Samaria, more than he has told anyone else to this point about who he is, except for a couple of his disciples and his mom, if you've been reading in John. Other than that, it's the woman in Samaria that receives this incredibly surprising revelation she begins to realize i think this guy is more than just an average prophet she says i know that messiah called christ is coming and when he comes he will explain everything to us and then jesus declared to her i the one speaking to you i am he in identifying himself as the Messiah to the Samaritan woman, he revealed his true identity publicly here before he ever did it to this level anywhere else. He also, in doing so, affirms, like Ezekiel prophesied, that God's plan for salvation included the Samaritans. It included those, those people who lived in enemy territory, who were supposed to hate him and hate his disciples, who had been excluded, who in the minds of the Judeans had excluded themselves. And yet here Jesus is showing us, no, they're included too. God loves them too. And he longs for true worship from them just as, he, as much as he does from anyone else. But I think the disciples are learning here. Again, they... They look on this and they don't understand. They dare not question him. But they don't have a playbook for this. They don't understand what they're seeing. They have greatly underestimated the work of God's kingdom. And if we're honest, we do the same thing. Sometimes we take all that God's kingdom work could possibly include and we boil it down only to the ways in which we see and we understand, and we want it to be. Sometimes we even boil it down like the Samaritans and like the Jews geographically, where we think God can really only work, his kingdom is really only present in a place like this, 
when we're together and studying and worshiping as if God's kingdom is all present here, but somehow elusive to us when we walk outside the doors. Vilma Bamaceda is a Christian from Peru. She talked about this in her own context, the way she was brought up. She said, I was basically taught that the way to expand the kingdom was by bringing more people to church services on Sunday morning, which, by the way, as a pastor, I'm fine with. If you want to bring more people to church services, that's great. But she said, what I began to learn was that I had become so place-centered that I thought the kingdom of God was only present in the places that I knew and in the religious spiritual sectors like this one. But I soon learned the kingdom of God is present wherever the king is present. And the king is present sometimes in the places we least expect. We're surprised to find out that he's working there too. He's not waiting for us to bring his kingdom into those places. He's already there. But what he's called us to do is to go into those places and announce it. And announce that he's present. To find where he's at work. And to join him in it. And to see that the king is present even in the most unexpected places. And his kingdom is there even where people are completely hopeless. And in this case... The Samaritan woman gets this unbelievably surprising revelation, and the kingdom is present in the land of the enemy. But this is not the end of the story. The Samaritan woman learning Jesus' identity is not where this stops. There's one more short part of the passage I want us to read. Moving on to verse 28. We're going to see in her town a true awakening to belief in Jesus Christ as the Messiah. Again, John wrote his gospel that those who would get to the end would believe that Jesus is the Messiah. Here in John chapter 4, we have an example of a group of people who did just that. Then leaving her water jar, verse 28 leaving her water jar, the very thing she came to do at the well, to fill up her water. The woman went back to the town and said to the people, come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? And they came out of the town and they made their way toward him. Skipping forward just a few verses to verse 39. Then many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. And so when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two days. Who would have imagined that usually when the Judeans go around Samaria, they don't even want to set foot in this area, that Jesus and his disciples would have stayed there for two days. I bet his disciples didn't imagine that before they left. Verse 41, because of his words, many more became believers. And listen to this. They then said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this man really is the Savior of the world. Don't miss what just happened here. At this point in Jesus' ministry, more people were awakened to his identity 
and to salvation in his name as the Messiah in Samaria than had been in Judea or anywhere else to this point. This was an incredible awakening that started with one very well-known public sinner, the Samaritan woman, and ultimately spread throughout the entire town. And I love to think about things like this. In some ways, it's just the way my mind works. But in more ways, I think it's the more we engage with Scripture and we just fall in love with it, that God brings these wondrous thoughts to our hearts and minds. And I think about later, so we're talking about years later in the book of Acts, chapter 8. Jesus has ascended to heaven. The early church is becoming established. Thousands of people have now come to faith through the church, and they begin to be persecuted in Jerusalem and Judea. And the persecution gets so intense that many Christians are pushed out of Jerusalem, and they have to go find another place to stay. And the first place we read about them going in Acts chapter 8 is into Samaria. And when those Christians who are forced to leave their homes because of threats there now have to go into a place where there could easily be more danger, they find not hostility, but they find welcome and they find open hearts to the gospel. Not only open hearts to the gospel, but open hearts to churches being planted in Samaria. And here's that wondrous thought. What if the reason those first Christians found that welcome in those open hearts years later in Samaria was the result of the seeds that were planted here in John chapter 4 through the Samaritan woman and the people of the town. That they had believed in Jesus as the Messiah all those years later, and when these Christians arrived, they weren't strangers, they were brothers and sisters in Christ. And the gospel began to spread in Samaria again in the book of Acts. Why? Because the kingdom is at work in all different kinds of places and in all different kinds of people in their hearts. And what God wants from us, no matter who we are, where, we've, where we're from, what we've done, where we've been, He seeks true worshipers who will worship Him in spirit and in truth with our breath with our lives, with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And here in this little town in Samaria, there was an awakening. And people believed because they saw Jesus for themselves. One of our goals for this year, in 2021, is that we would see an awakening here in our community. That we would see it in our church, in our own hearts, but that we would see it in the neighborhoods around us, that we would see it in our schools, in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces. We're going to have an event in September. You're going to start hearing more about it. There's just a little bit of information in your channel today called the, the Tulsa Festival for Christ. And we're asking in the fall that the Lord will bring people here to us but, but even more than that, before then, he will have sent us out to people that we might see an awakening happen, that they might also say, we believe because we have seen Jesus for ourselves. We're starting with the Gospel of John, not just so we can fall in love with this book. Again, it's a wonderful book, but so that we might be even better equipped 
to lift up the name of Jesus. Like we saw modeled in baptism today, that we would be commissioned and sent out. That we would not only believe, but that we would share the good news so that others might believe as well. This is a reminder that if an awakening can happen in a town in Samaria in the first century, as Judeans come through, it can happen anywhere. The kingdom is at work all around us. Our role is to go out there and announce it, to let people know so that they would see Jesus for themselves. So as we come back to the heart of the matter, the invitation for you today, for me as well, is that we would offer to God true worship in spirit and in truth, with our breath, with our lives, with our actions, that we would follow Jesus as disciples, not just be churchgoers, but follow Jesus as disciples, giving to God our heart, soul, mind, and strength because he is the creator and sustainer of all of our life and breath. And he is worthy of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. I don't know if that describes you here at the beginning of this year, or maybe you find yourself tired too. I get it, I understand. But I submit to you, we can't afford to be tired right now. Now is the time to worship God in spirit and truth and to be the people, brothers and sisters, that he's called us to be. Today, as this invitation goes out, 